Hello and welcome to Techno Social. Today's guest is Zach Stein, who is a philosopher of education and also an expert in developmental studies. In this conversation, we think about education and its importance, especially as we live through what he calls a time between worlds. We unpack this idea of being in a time between worlds, thinking about increasing global complexity and the fact that many of our current institutions aren't doing a good job at preparing us for the complexity and navigating it. We think about theories of self that underlie different systems of education. We think about what system of self informs education under late capitalism and also what theory of self might inform a future system. We also think about some of the issues with the contemporary education system, covering standardised testing, the way that kids who are struggling to concentrate are labelled as having ADHD, and also the way the current system seems to produce people who are power-hungry and irresponsible. The people who orchestrated the financial crisis of 2008 being, supposedly, some of the best minds from the top universities. Super interesting conversation, this good one, guys. Hope you enjoy. Zach Stein, Zach, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, man. I was wondering to start if you could just give us a bit of an idea of, of your background and what got you interested in, in education in particular and I suppose reforming education, which is what a lot of your work seems to be on. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a dyslexic. So I was always at odds with school and with... Uh, you know, assessment and testing in particular. And so I think that meant from a young age, I didn't just take schools as given and understood learning as something that kind of took place outside of schools. And so I taught myself music and was mostly interested in being a musician until about halfway through college. <clears throat> and it was actually at that point that I became obsessed with a certain kind of philosophy, a kind of developmental kind of evolutionary way of thinking about the human experience. I found it in Emerson and Ken Wilber and Blavatsky and Kaufman and a whole bunch of other people I was reading then, Charles Sanders Peirce. <clears throat> and uh, that allowed me to see that there's a kind of almost cosmic function to education as an aspect of human cultural evolution. If you understand cultural evolution itself, as continuous with biological and cosmological evolution, which is to say that if you understand the human as nested in an evolving nature and you want to help the human continue to evolve, 
you should probably focus on education. <laughs> and this was what John Dewey, you know, John Dewey realized this early, uh, probably the most in the most profound way soonest after Darwin, right? Because it was Darwin that got the entire world system <laughs> to start thinking about evolution as opposed to a static or cyclical uh, way of thinking about stuff. So, yeah, so that meant I plugged into education, uh, not with, for an example, a desire to be a teacher, although I love teaching and have loved teachers and have benefited massively from teaching and teachers. Uh, and I also didn't go in thinking about schooling in particular or being a principal or thinking about school systems. I came in very, very much as a philosopher and doing basic work in metaphysics and metapsychology. And the work in psychology was developmental psychology, specifically in the realm of psychometrics. And so the first book was about how we measure minds and the social justice issues related with standardized testing infrastructures. And I run the history of that from the IQ tests up through No Child Left Behind. Uh, and then the second book, Education and Time Between Worlds, continues just with that kind of metasystemic reflection on education as an issue, uh, transcending and including schooling as an issue. Uh, and when you start to look at it that way, you start to realize that actually education itself is tied up in issues of civilizational continuity, which is to say, one way to understand what civilization is, is the continuous intergenerational transmission of a particular kind of skill, capacity, virtue. Um, and when there are rifts in the dynamics of intergenerational transmission, such that the civilization cannot reproduce itself, Habermas thought of this as sociological autopoiesis. Mm. Uh, when the society cannot reproduce itself through the basic function of education, <clears throat> then you have something like a civilizational collapse dynamic. Uh, and these dynamics have been tracked by a bunch of researchers, including people like Tainter and Daniel Schmachtenberger, uh, who's a colleague of mine. So the issue of education and civilizational collapse started to fall into place uh, for me towards the end of graduate school. <clears throat> and so that's mostly where I'm working now is thinking about this interface of metaphysics, psychology, and politics uh, in this realm of education and the time between worlds. So, uh, so that's, that's, the, that's the sum of it. Um, kind of brings us up to speed. Yeah, I mean, based on on some of what you've just said, and indeed the title of the recent book, Education in a, T in a Time Between Worlds, there's this sense that perhaps something is, is breaking down, or something is changing. That's what, I guess, a bunch of those guys, Daniel Schmachtenberger talks about that a bunch. What do you think it is that is perhaps crumbling, falling apart, and how is that tied with education? Uh, I mean, in a very general sense, uh, I talk about it in the book as the capitalist world system. And this is a term used by Emmanuel Wallerstein, um, who's an incredible uh, historian of economics and politics and culture. And, you know, when we talk about what's distinctive about the West, and specifically what's distinctive about what happened after about 1600, <laughs> when there was a major shift in the dynamics of industrialization and capitalization. Uh, 
which created what Wallerstein describes as the capitalist world system. And now there've been other world systems that have not been capitalist. <clears throat> and in fact, as Wallerstein shows, if you look at Mesopotamia and what we now call the Middle East and the Indus River Valley, you see prior to the emergence of the capitalist world system, uh, a bunch of coexisting non-capitalist world systems. Uh, and so what that means is that the capitalist world system did something interesting and actually succeeded in making a global world system as opposed to a self-contained world system on the same globe with other world systems, you see. And so thinking about it in those terms, actually, and this is maybe a footnote, but thinking about it in these, in these other terms uh, helps you th think back into cultural history, what it would have been like to live prior to the emergence of the capitalist world system, where intercultural exchange was more like a movement between world systems than like a movement between cultures within a single world system, which is what we have now. And that's what people talk about when they talk about multiculturalism. And the complexity of that is that it's like the whole system's contained by capitalism, by the infrastructures and dynamics of capitalism. And we can get into that, but uh, which means that culture's now different than it used to be. And so Habermas talks about this as the colonialization of the life world, um, which didn't used to be potentially complete before the capitalist world system achieved its global um, enclosure. <clears throat> and so what that mean, means is that for the first time ever, a civilization has uh, um, enclosed the entire planet. And unfortunately, that's what I'm talking about <laughs> when I'm talking about something coming apart. And so it used to be when world systems came untangled, uh, there were other world systems thousands of miles away that weren't affected. And there were ecosystems that had never been touched by humans uh, or brought into the dynamics of any world system metabolism. Um, world systems are also world ecologies. World systems also organize uh, ecosystems um, and live within them. And so, yeah, cap this, this particular one that we're looking at now, and capitalism may not be the right word anymore, to be honest with you, <laughs> but it is a, it is a totalized infrastructural um, uh, project. And it's a fragmented planetary computational stack, as has been described by Benjamin, ba Benjamin Bratton at the most abstract level. And it's cobbled together. <clears throat> it's a planetary system, yes, but it was not planetary... Uh, by uh, transcendental design, it was planetary by ambition and then retrospective piecemeal scrapping together of <laughs> international trade and law and standards. Um, I've looked at the capitalist world system, particularly from the perspective of measurement and the proliferation of complex measurement infrastructures uh, exemplified by the international standards organizations. Um, but also you're living right with it when you're taking a standardized test or um, in, in any kind of building that is up to code. You are in a architectural space that has been standardized by the capitalist world system for you, uh, as opposed to an architectural space that's built um, through cultural transmission alone, for example. 
So there's a shift in the relation between culture and system, and there's a shift in the relation between system and system so that we have one giant system where it's all interconnected. And uh, we don't have what I call a planetary paideia. A paideia is a Greek word that means education. So although we have an interconnected infrastructure that's global, um, and that's a complex statement, and we can get into that, of course, it's not entirely global. Russia, China, <laughs> right? Places that are not. But it, from a, one, another perspective, there's nothing outside of the containment of these largest infrastructures. There's not a major systemic cascade that wouldn't ricochet around the entire planet, um, uh, which is unprecedented. Amazing gift of planetization, the kind of urgency of interconnectedness of it all, um, but also the danger of having the world system encapsulate the planet is that if the world system fails, it's game over in a way that didn't used to be true. And <clears throat> so, yeah, the measurement infrastructures are some of those things that uh, already encircle the planet. Um, and our educational infrastructures are fragmented and from like the 19th century. <laughs> Uh, and so that's the dynamic I'm looking at is the lag between technological, economic interconnection at the planetary level and fragmented, nationalistic, human capital oriented educational systems, which have not kept pace with the technological change. And to the extent we're now at the technological change acting back on the generational transmission, as I'm getting at. So, like, the technology companies are disrupting the potentials of intergenerational transmission through predatory and addictive behavior uh, in screen-based cultures. Uh, so and I'm kind of rambling now, but that's, it's, what's coming apart is big and complicated um, and truly complex in like the technical sense of that term, which means that it is going through something like a catastrophic bifurcation. So that's what I also kind of mean. And this is Wallerstein's terms. He pulls from Prigogine and looks at these kind of very complex systems far from equilibrium and what they do. And he says, this is what, hey, this is what world systems look like. They're massively complex systems that go through catastrophic bifurcations. Uh, we're in one, <laughs> uh, which means uh, now's a time of incredible opportunity uh, as well as incredible danger. Um, so I see mostly it as an educational crisis. It's a time that we need to understand again what it means to be human and understand again how to instill in the next generations the things that will constitute the, the future that's worth living. Um, uh, and one very different from what's currently our path. Which is kind of leading to the edge of the basically. I think it certainly it certainly sort of frames um, a lot of the problems that we face really well to think of sort of capitalism or maybe even you could even call it modernity as a as a world system. It then sort of makes a lot of sense that we would be facing a climate crisis that affects the whole planet. And um, <clears throat> uh, I think. There's a very good point you made about education. I've heard it said that we basically still have factory style education. We produce children in batches based on age. And um, 
that they sort of the, 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 the school, if you look at say Louis Althusser, he very specifically draws a parallel between sort of level of schooling and um, uh, class that basically, you know, one thing that can obviously be said is that in sort of Britain nowadays, um, a university degree is essentially just a ticket into the middle class. Um, <clears throat> and though I think, I, think, I think that's a very, very good point about how, how we live in a world that's moving in leaps and bounds and that is now totally interconnected, but education seems to still completely resemble what it did in 1850 in many ways. Yeah, I mean, in, in some places, that's totally true. Uh, so the way I would frame it is this, uh, there's a kind of correspondence principle that's sometimes talked about um, in the history of education, where there's a correspondence between the mode of production in the economy and the means of relationship and dynamic of relationship in schools. And so that's that notion of the factory school occurs in the society that has people in factories as their main mode of economic productivity. Now, the one-room schoolhouse occurs in places where the mode of production is the single household, <laughs> right? So the mirror between the single household as a central mode of economic production and the one-room schoolhouse and then the transition into modernity with the factory school and the factory workers, <clears throat> uh, we're actually seeing another shift in that. And this has to do with the move towards taking apart the big factory schools and replacing them with things that look like startup companies. This is the charter school movement where you're literally fracturing the unified high school into a bunch of various targeted specific kind of charter schools or uh, independent schools. Um, and so that's interesting where now the kind of white collar uh, um, and kind of gig economy <laughs> uh, is being mirrored in a kind of much more fractured and differentiated, almost stratified entrepreneurial education space. Uh, and that's very different from a kind of Dewey and ideal of getting all the kids in a melting pot. You're actually differentiating all the kids up at a very early age. Um, and so that's, uh, that's key um, to get the, the difference there. Um, so, yeah, the difference, you know, between it's not just factory schools. Um, in fact, we transcended factory schools with the movement into white collar labor some time ago. Um, and we're moving into something now that looks like this educational marketplace, like an educational gig economy. Um, and, uh, yeah, the kind of marketization of the educational system itself is a dynamic that's important to see as part of this expansion of the, of the capitalist world system. Part of the end game is that we start to turn into markets things that were never considered as to be markets. <laughs> um, and uh, education. Of late capitalism. Yeah, yeah, it's a symptom of late capitalism that we need to find more and more realms to commodify to continue to grow the economy. So, um, yeah, I, I think I was just saying about how 
how um, we actually did an episode with, um, I'm sure you remember Owen, with uh, the, the guy who asked to remain anonymous, who's um, yeah. uh, an Irish university professor, or ex-university professor, and he was basically saying about how universities as, as educational institutions have fundamentally changed in Britain, uh, or well, in Ireland, but then you see exactly the same change in Britain, which is that they basically are now geared towards getting students into the university mm-hmm. because number of students determines funding, which in turn determines profits. And, and that this has been completely at the expense of research and that you, um, university management are now very uninterested in, in research going on in universities. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. if you think about it, that could be an entire paradigm shift in education because the, traditional unity of the educational institution and the research institution that is university is being essentially attacked that now the places where people are are taught and learn will also no longer be the places for innovation and new thought and Mm. um and and research right you know it's it's an interesting dynamic i i write about it under the the rubric of uh the education commodity proposition, right? Which is the idea that you can apply market models and business models to the quote creation of educational quote products, <laughs> right? Which I'm suggesting is, a, is at a base level the fundamentally wrong metaphor and model. And uh, I've also written about this with the economist Hans Despain uh, under the heading of the financialization of higher education. We wrote a series of op-eds on them one of them can be found on my website. And there you also see that it's not simply that the transactional relationship takes place between the student and the college, which you're saying where there's direct to consumer advertising and increasing inflation of tuition. And, uh, but there's also this relationship between the colleges and financial services agencies, which is to say that where the colleges put the kids in debt, the colleges are themselves in debt (laughs) and you end up creating a a dynamic, which is like a bubble, Uh, but it's a student loan bubble. So it's, it works like this. And this is how it worked in real estate where the people who build the houses get the money from the banks to build houses They build them on debt. And then the people who, buy the houses, of course, take mortgages. So the houses are bought on debt. We're also built on debt. The same banks give out that debt. So the contractors pay back their debts with the money that the people who bought the houses took um, from the same bank. (laughs) So you can see how, and this is a, of course, amateur economic analysis, uh, but you can see how this works, right? where the colleges are now, in order to pay back their debts, needing to fill more seats. They just built a new building. They need to fill more seats in order to pay back those debts, putting the kids in debt in order to pay back the college's debt. Um, and so Graeber talks about, Graeber talks about, he, yeah, Graeber talks about the dynamic and a, and a few other people. Um, and it's tricky because it means that at the end of the day, who's shouldering the ultimate debt is the student. and what's the likelihood they're not gonna be able to pay it. It's very high, similar to the mortgage holder 
in the financial bubble, holding ultimately the end of the debt rope uh, and their house not being what it actually said it was worth, right? And that's how a bubble bursts. So at the end of the day, we need to cash in this value somewhere. <laughs> and uh, it's supposed to be now in the skills of the kids who went through their colleges. Um, but the economy is not functioning such that they can actually cash those skills and repay the debts. So the student, at least in the United States, it's different elsewhere, the student loan debt situation is uh, quite bad. And it's not as simple as forgiving it, uh, which is to say it's, although I promote the ideas of debt jubilee uh, in my book, um, it's the situation with the student loan crisis is again, educational. Um, first, the society needs to understand what happened. Why did we do this? Why do we get in this situation? Uh, which is very complicated and a hard thing for a culture to grasp. Only then, when there's a broad understanding of how it is that we end up doing this to a whole generation, uh, then we can start to think about you know, remediating the actual concrete economic situation. Otherwise, it looks like we're just letting the kids off the hook and giving them a bunch of money back. <laughs> uh, and so, and that's the reaction most people have when you say forgive the student loan debt. The reaction is, well, that's absurd. Um, and unfair, mm. unfair, where do you like, I'm older, I still have student loan debt. Does mine get forgiven or is there some age at which now we forgive all of theirs? Or So it, it becomes complicated technical problem uh, if we don't resolve the kind of ethical, moral, self-understanding problem that was the root of the crisis itself, which is that we thought it was fine way to do things. We thought it was fine to turn education into a purely transactional relationship in which the student is understood as human capital. Uh, and uh, so other, other countries didn't choose to do that to the same extent, but because of the way universities are nested in ec economies more broadly, many of them are having to be turned into market-based dynamics anyway, just to make ends meet, often to pay back their own uh, debts. <laughs> so yeah, it's a complicated mess. And of course, where the research goes on is, is an important question. And that gets to the issue of civilizational collapse as a function of educational failure. Um, if the mind of the civilization, the place where the thinking is supposed to be done in the civilization in order to steer the civilization, if that thinking is not actually being done because they've marketized it and set up incentive systems that actually disincentivize long-term complex research in the interest of short-term kind of funding structures and those kinds of dynamics and you're not actually making sense in the academic realms where you need to be making the most sense in order to help civilization solve problems, right? So you can see there's a vicious downward spiral of kind of like the cognitive side of these collapse dynamics. And um, that's the educational crisis in its most serious dimensions. You've talked about taking the philosopher's perspective on education. And this is what I find quite interesting i know you, i've heard you talk elsewhere i think with daniel thorson about the ways almost like it used the word metapsychology the theory we, we have about ourselves and indeed the way we interact with each other and with society plays itself out in how we do things like education i was wondering if you could perhaps explain what might be the theory of self that exists in the kind of current paradigm as it exists and what might be a better theory of self and indeed of society going forwards. That's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, 
Well, there's, there's two ways to think about this. You know, one is that there's a there's a way that we're there's a way that we're like structurally incentivized to understand ourselves by virtue of the bureaucracies and institutions and family systems we find ourselves in, and so that's an important kind of dimension of this issue, which is that um, when you talk about like a false self and a real self, right, or a kind of inauthentic self and an authentic self, or a persona versus like a, you know, individuated, like Jungian self, that sense of duplicity in identity, um, and that uh, who I show myself to be in society is not who I feel myself to be in private. Right? So those kinds of dynamics uh, need to be surfaced before you start talking about like what, uh, which self are we moving into, which self are we coming from? Um, so you need to locate first the question in your own experience. <laughs> uh, and cause I think that would be one way to think about the self we're leaving as a self that's just a thought. Right. That's what the ego is a thought, um, uh, which is to say it's an important one. It's like the linchpin thought. <laughs> it's the center of your self-esteem and it's the center of your motivation and the center of what holds your identity together with, you know, together with boundaries. And, uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's an abstraction and that's what many contemplative traditions are trying to expose. It's not that it's not real. It doesn't have a function. Not that it's not important to be actually a healthy, dynamic, and mature and complex ego. Uh, but there's still a way in which there are other ways of relating to this question of self. Non-descriptive, not parsed in semantically and propositionally differentiated speech, um, but as lived experience. Uh, and so this is the phenomenological traditions and, the, again, the contemplative traditions. Um, and so I think because of the nature of how civilization is changing the educational crisis, I raised this question of what is the human? Um, and so I, I don't think we're looking at like some new theory of self that's articulated <laughs> in language. Um, although I think we're going to get that. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we're looking at the new, new certain new possibilities for embodied experience of self. Um, and, uh, which is kind of like a move out of the abstract linguistically mediated forms of self-understanding and to move into those forms of understanding that are mediated by relationship, empathy, movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so this is all quite abstract and, uh, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, uh, the difference between knowing someone by virtue of their resume and knowing someone by virtue of sharing a meal with them, right? So like the abstract ego of modernity is like a resume, right? Like it's mostly about that front-facing persona and what it looks like. That's the commodity fetishism of the identity that characterizes the self of modernity, which is that you apply the commodity form to the self, which is that you present it it's on a shelf and you hide the whole production process behind it <laughs> and you clarify its relationship to price. Um, so, you know, wage labor, 
characterizes the self of modernity. Um, and the selling of myself into the wage labor market um, forces, in a sense, the application of commodity form to the self and therefore the truncation alienation of self. Um, so for example, and this is what I'm getting at, if we didn't have the category of wage labor anymore because there was something like a basic income guarantee, uh, then that would disrupt not the thought of self, but the embodied experience of self. Like intergeneration, there would be something so different to being brought into an ecosystem of social life where there was no category of wage labor, where the self didn't necessarily have to be commodified and presented into the market as a resume. Um, uh, and so that's an example where it's not so, it's, gonna, it's probably more that we'll figure out which of the theories of self we've already had and which of the ways of talking about self actually makes sense. <laughs> not that we're gonna have a new novel way of explaining the self. In fact, we're gonna kind of come to realize what I call like the return to the human. We're gonna come to realize what we've kind of always been what we've been tricked out of realizing we are. Again, just like thinking that self-organizing a neighborhood educational initiative, all volunteer-based, right, doesn't quote count, but forming an LLC that makes a profit, that gen moves up the GDP, that quote does count, right? So it's kind of like, where are the places where you can do self-creation outside of transactional market dynamics? Um, as more of those become available, um, for better and for worse, because the economy, right? Which is to say, if the economy breaks, we also get that opportunity. <laughs> uh, because then money's not worth anything. And then we're stuck realizing other ways of thinking about the relationship between people and who we are, what we're worth, what we can do, right? So, yeah, there's going to be a de abstraction of the self, that's what mm. I'm saying, and a return to kind of a basic embodied sense of the human. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, I think one of the things that characterizes a lot of crisis and transformation of personality and relationship is moments when the language game breaks down and when you fall into a deeper layer of relationship and process and it feels like you're actually in reality, not, uh, in some model or language you had about it. Um, and so we're going through that like as a culture <laughs> where the language isn't working and certain realities are beginning to bump, bump up against the things we use to control them, like the weather and uh, mm -hmm. the human nervous system and our inner natures are exhausting our control mechanisms uh, and our explanatory capacity, which means uh, we're gonna be forced back to the kind of raw experience of being human, hopefully we will, as we've done in the past, reconstruct some sanity out of that. I, um, <clears throat> I definitely think um, that, that your point about returning to sort of a realization that we've sort of been pricked into thinking that we haven't had is, is very true because I can certainly think, especially with this sort of, um, with the analogy of sort of not-for-profit organizations that most of, I certainly would consider the volunteering that I've done in my life, which is not a lot by any means, especially in terms of the amount of time I've spent volunteering compared to time I've spent working. I've so, I would certainly think that the volunteering that I've done has had a much, much bigger effect on my idea 
of myself and my life than than the work that I've done. Um, I mean, paid labor that is that I've done, and and I think that that's something that a lot of people in my generation are probably uh, could probably relate to. That I think people are moving more and more towards seeing work as kind of an unfortunate necessity whereas in my parents generation i certainly see in my parents that work is kind of viewed as the defining aspect of your life that um for i mean i think this is maybe more true for people who have sort of professions and um you know for example my parents are architects and that's right. certainly something that can um you know contribute a lot more to defining your life and other types of work but i certainly see in them that work kind of embodies their life whereas i think in a lot of my generation a lot of people myself included tend to kind of see work as an unfortunate necessity so that you can make money so that you can then go and do the things right that you see as sort of defining you right no totally and that's uh that is a shift and it is i think unfortunate and part of the educational crisis right which is that in fact my contribution to civilization, right? My work is an unfortunate necessity mm. that what I really do is what I only get a chance to do with a very small portion of my time. Most of my time I have to spend dealing with this unfortunate necessity of civilization, right? That sucks. And that's the mm. experience you get in school right away. Many people <laughs> school <laughs> feels like, itself like this job you're eventually going to have school feels like an unfortunate necessity and we're we're kind of habituated to tolerate these unfortunate necessities um and uh you know freud classically wrote civilization and its discontents and uh you know this argument that it's an unfortunate necessity this is definitely that kind of freudian view here that ah like yes <laughs> we're stuck we're stuck in this um i i don't think it needs to be that way and this gets to basic issues of this time between worlds and the opportunity to create a social system that participating in doesn't feel like an unfortunate necessity right uh and uh it's interesting because there are definitely echelons within the capitalist world system uh, the high-ranking cronies, as it were, uh, and some of the metamodern aristocrats uh, who are freed to feel like that they participate in civilization in such a way that it's not an unnecessary uh, or unfortunate necessity. Um, and, uh, and so that's interesting that there are places where we can see that it's possible, <laughs> right? Like where there are like these pockets and niches that occur. Um, where people are really aligned and doing work that helps civilization and pays the bills and allows them to be doing something that doesn't feel like they wouldn't do it anyway. Yeah. Like if, like if they had unlimited funds that they would still do this, that they're not just doing it for money. Right. And again, this is about what does it mean to understand yourself outside the context of a wage laborer and what would it be to be growing up in school all along? Uh, understanding as you're growing up that you don't have to eventually work some job whether you like it or not. Right? Um, that there's going to be enough diversification of ways to participate 
um, and enough equitable distribution in the sum of the goods of our participation and cooperation uh, that you are not uh, forced to engage in something that feels perpetually like you're wasting your time with an unfortunate <laughs> uh, necessity just to make money, right? That's a, I'm saying this as an educator more than as an economic reformer. I'm saying that uh, you're sapping the lifeblood out of learning and schooling because of this way of conceiving the ultimate goal of adult life. Um, and uh, so there's a cynical acceptance that sets in, uh, which I think some of the younger generation who are kind of like loving the hustle have adopted, um, where they're not particularly invested in the project of civilization and perpetuity, uh, but they are invested in climbing through the meritocratic or ostensibly meritocratic ranks of uh, wage labor and earning. Um, so that can flip. Um, and uh, which is to say, you can game the game for your own self-interest and succeed by many metrics, um, but ultimately not be invested in this project of civilization in perpetuity, which is what civilization requires. It requires us understanding certain forms of cooperation and transpersonal commitment to goods and ideals um, that uh, allow us to create infrastructures and to provide social benefits and to create art and other things that uh, are based on a logic of non-reciprocated care uh, rather than pure transaction. Um, and so that is what's characterized civilization. It's the, the rule of persuasion over force, right? The rule of uh, persuasion over force and the unforced force of the better argument rather than violence. And, uh, and so that requires education. So again, I'm a broken record with that, but you know, I'm an education philosopher, so that's what you get. It, it really, did. something came up when you were talking about the idea of civilization in perpetuity. And I was thinking about, I suppose, like if there is a meta statement we give to people about why you're doing education. And I just think that I never really got that. Like, I don't think, it was particularly well explained to me why I went to school other than having the odd argument with my mum, basically saying, why do I have to go to school? So you can get a good job so you can earn money. I was like, right. why? Why do I have to do that? <laughs> and then like, I remember I had a bit of a, well, my undergrad years were characterized by a bit of existential crisis because I very nearly went to study physics. And then mm. I had this moment where I was like, I had this real intuitive sense, like, no, study classics, study ancient literature, study, mm -hmm ancient wow. poetry and philosophy but the thing is i didn't have a clue why i wanted to do that and i spent two and a half three years there like well this is really cool but i still don't know why the fuck i'm studying it no one's explained to me why i'm studying this or what the value right. of it. it's just right. a degree and fortunately i feel like i kind of worked it out by the time i started my mm -hmm. master's year that, okay now i feel like i actually understand the history of western culture and art and that feeds into the Renaissance in quite a deep way. And that's cool. But I wish someone had told me that from day one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and it's interesting. It's a, it's a problem. And it's, you know, it's a problem that results from solving a worse problem, right? So the modern innovation at schooling is a result of separation of church and state, right? So they're basically saying like, hey, no, 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 we're exactly not telling you the answer about everything. <laughs> we're exactly not telling you what it all means, right? 
And now for a while, it used to be we're telling you you're a citizen, right? You're, you're an American, damn it. Like that was the, that's how we solved the problem of what it all means in the schools. But eventually we stopped trying to answer what it all means altogether. And so that left the students with this kind of, yeah, this sense of this kind of unfortunate necessity that's never fully explained except in so far as it's instrumental value for future wage labor. Um, now you'll get a couple teachers who will like behind closed doors whisper in your ear and tell you, no man, there's this thing called like building or like self-building or self-development, right? That education is an end in itself. And then if you build your capacities and insights and understanding, you'll find a way to contribute and blah. Like there are people who are aware of this message, but the predominant message is one of, no, you just do school because it's there. <laughs> like it's kind of like a second nature that we've created that you just go into and up and out of um, and don't really question it. Um, and that's what's interesting is that the smartest ones will want an answer to that question. And so you know, we misunderstand, I think, attention deficit sometimes uh, as actually just the tension produced by the answer to that, by the absence of the answer to that question, right? So it's like, why am I doing this? 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 And if no one actually answers that, or if all the answers are obviously not enough, and you know that, and I know that, <laughs> then there's a built up tension in the mind body of an absence of an answer to the fundamental motivation of how I'm spending most of my time. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's clear that many kids with ADD, uh, there are other issues. We've got nutritional issues and a whole bunch of things. And, uh, but it's also clear that when they really care about something like for example, video games <laughs> or friendships or music or other things, uh, they'll actually get a lock-in effect where you can't tear them away. <laughs> uh, and so that shows that there's a pent-up desire to actually really operate on the world and to focus when there's a sense of why. When, it, when the mo my motivation and the motivation of what I'm doing aligns and it all feels right, then I can do it. And when that happens in schools and kids still can't focus, then we can start talking about a problem with their brain. But until we answer that question and stop that loop of why am I doing this, why am I doing this, really stop that loop to say you're doing this because we are humans, because this is the nature of our civilization, because we value this and because X, Y, Z. And uh, Until we do that, then it's, it's very hard to actually expect these kids to, to try. You know, the, the, I'm talking about the, the smartest, most reflective, most abstract and complex and some of the ones most wanting to benefit and help civilization are the ones who will be in school scratching their heads like Henry David Thoreau thinking about what is all this around me and why are we doing this, right? And uh, in general, the response is not enough. Like they're yeah. not, co not coherent enough, not forthcoming enough. Uh, and many cases, blatant lie, because a lot of these kids know that there's no job waiting for me, dude. <laughs> like, look at these kids who are coming out of school. Where are they going to work? Like, let's be realistic here. Like, principal or whoever is telling me I'm going to go get a great job. Like, let's be realistic about what the job prospects look like for degrees like mine uh, versus the debt I'm incurring coming on. And so there's a basic problem that we can't say good, true, and beautiful things about the nature of the situation we're putting the youth in, uh, and they know it.
and so of course they're not paying attention. <laughs> uh, well, they're paying a lot of attention to other things, just not to you and not to school. Um, they're paying attention to YouTube and they're paying attention to social media uh, and all kinds of things. Um, so again, this is part of the dynamic of the educational crisis is what I call a legitimacy crisis. Mm. which is the absence or inability to secure political legitimacy or investment in the project of cooperation, which is society. And that's one of those things education has to do <laughs> or, the center, or the center falls apart. And it's an intergenerational rift, which is what I started off kind of talking about. Um, yeah, so that's heavy, you know, it gets right back to your, and I experienced it in school too. But as I said, I was dyslexic, and so I had already kind of like not identified with school. And uh, so I lucked out. Uh, but if I really wanted to succeed by virtue of the tests in high school and the SAT and a few other things, if I'd really wanted to succeed in that way, I would have been destroyed before I had an opportunity to discover my gifts. And it was those gifts that allowed me to get up and eventually into higher education in like upper echelon, kind of Harvard style. But I snuck in, basically, I'm telling you guys, <laughs> uh, because I made relationships with key professors. Um, I had no GPA because I went to a school that didn't have tests and grades, Hampshire College, which is now falling apart and dying. Uh, and uh, I also, uh, you know, bombed the GRE because I'm a dyslexic, I'm a terrible test taker. So by normal standards of the educational system, I was a failure and kind of always did just mediocre enough. Um, uh, and so that's still how I'm basically perceived by the standards and measures of that traditional system. I managed to find niches and get through um, by virtue of basically, you know, luck and grace, um, I would say, uh, more so than my own tenacity, I certainly, you know, uh, felt like it was a gift rather than, uh, anything else but most people in my situation who reflect that as early in age as i did about how the whole thing is <laughs> feels like it's rigged against me <laughs> or something like that uh they, they never would end up getting into graduate school or anything of that nature just by virtue of the how the cookie crumbles so yeah. i think yeah we're, we are in a sense we are false positives and false negatives in the sorting mechanism of the educational system, which is to say that many of our best and brightest are not getting found and getting the resources they need. And many of our most conventional kind of rote thinkers and kind of game A success oriented ones are getting rising through the bureaucracies um, and into positions of uh, power and prestige. Uh, and so, yeah, we are, uh, that's part of the educational crisis. Also there, capability crisis. Can we get the right people with the right capabilities into the right positions in civilization so that it doesn't break? And that's another thing the education system is supposed to do <laughs> is kind of route those people. <clears throat> oh, you're the truly responsible, highly capable, reflective one. You should be in that position, right? Oh, you're the political power hungry one who can't actually do abstract thinking. You should be in this position. But if we flip those, <laughs> And the power hungry, simple thinker who's manipulative gets put in a highly responsible, high capacity position. And the person who's actually very responsible and very abstract and capacitated gets put in a low responsibility, lower. So that happens. Um, and that's happening almost systematically. Uh, and so that's, another, again, bad sign. Uh, and that bad sign uh, mm. for, the edu for educational systems in particular.
I I can certainly um, remember when I was in school, kind of having a psychology almost of basically like I go to school and I do my homework and I try to do well on tests more or less entirely just so that people don't get angry at me just because like my teachers totally. and my parents get really pissed off when I don't do that. And so, That's a real motivation for you. Yeah. Like the, and the was, job yeah. 10 years, 15 years from now is not actually a real motivation. Given what I know about adolescent development and their brain and the frontal cortex, they're not actually able to think on decade long timelines, but they can think about the weekend and, yeah. not, and not getting grounded. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so that ends up being where the rubber hits the road with motivation and schooling usually um literally it's like oh, i have to do my homework because my parents are going to take away my xbox if i don't which exactly. kind of you know it's like on the one hand you can see this sort of thinking in terms of how do you get a child to do homework but right. that's that's kind of the functionalist sort of like this is the objective how do we force him to do that instead of like if, you know it's it's a similar logic to, I mean, actually, this kind of makes a lot of sense now to think it through. It's a similar logic to sort of wage labor, which is, hmm, we have all these jobs that no one really wants to now do. You got it. <laughs> arrange you get it, yeah. society so that some people have to do yeah. these jobs. Because external, external motivation. But notice that, like, you know, the Xbox is what's interesting. Why is the Xbox mm. enjoyable? The Xbox is actually enjoyable because of the way the video game is designed, where you get the thrill of learning and success. Period. Yeah. And like they did a lot of research. So no one actually has to use external motivation to get you to play Xbox because they did literally research and development budgets that rival f the federal research and development budgets for education are the video game developers who look into the skill sequences and the structures of challenge and support and level sequencing so that the experience of the video game is one of flow and the optimal structure of support and challenge and complex enough to be intriguing and force learning and the dopamine reaction of learning and success that comes from learning. So the video games have actually captured the attention and learning mechanisms through good research and development of the whole generation uh, and the schools failed to do that. Um, and uh, now they could have, <laughs> uh, if they had, let's say, maybe twice the research and development budget of the video game industry, it's just twice, um, which would be like some very small fraction of, let's say, a defense industry spending, uh, right? Yeah. So there's a failure of imagination about what's possible, I think, with public schooling. And so ultimately, my book is about getting a very different kind of educational system based around educational hub networks which are unprecedented institutions um, that recapture the attention of the youth with real learning and actual work in local contexts, solving problems and multi-generational, intergenerational collaboration. So there's things that can be done. <laughs> uh, but I think we have to think outside of the schooling as the main mechanism and think outside of economic futures that look like just more of what we have and start realizing oh no no we're preparing youth for a very different kind of economy that's going to come online 10 15 years from now so that's another factor